Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past to the events that shocked everyone. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal meet. Now who doesn't love a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Hunting History Podcast. This is Kat. And firstly, we want to remind you about our Halloween episode next week. There's still time for you to call in with your ghost story. All you have to do is call 805-283-9892 and leave a voicemail of your ghostly experience with your first name and the city and state where your experience happened. We will be picking at least three to play on next week's show. Deadline to call us is Thursday, October 25th. The number again is 805 805- 283-9892. Here we are at episode eight, and today we have Haley joining us. Hi, Haley. Hi. How are you? Good, how are you? Good. Um, to stick with our theme of ghost stories for the month of Halloween, today's episode isn't just about a building or an event. It's about a whole entire town here in Southern California, San Juan Capistrano. This is going to be not necessarily a series, but we will touch back every once in a while for Ghost of California and do different towns within California where there is rampant paranormal activity. But this week's episode is about San Juan Capistrano, probably more known for the being the location of the seventh of the 21 missions of California and for the swallows that return every year than it is for its ghost stories. San Juan Capistrano is one of the oldest settlements here in Southern California, and the city is the site of California's oldest residential neighborhood, Los Rios. It's also the home of the oldest in-use building in California, the Sarah Chapel in the Mission, and the area was both the site of the first vineyard and the first winery in California. And of course, along with that kind of history and longevity comes stories of ghosts and legends. The stories of San Juan Capistrano, a small village located in Orange County, have been around for hundreds of years now. I have found that the people in San Juan Capistrano not only openly discuss their ghost, legends, and folklore, they embrace it. There is rarely a place or business in town in the town proper that doesn't have stories of hauntings and experiences that happen, and they certainly aren't too shy to talk about them. I was lucky enough to be part of a paranormal team that investigated a lot in San Juan Capistrano and got to meet a lot of the people who live and work there and hear their personal experiences. Today we're going to talk about the legends and stories that are well known and have been passed down generation to generation, and then we're going to tell you about some of our own personal experiences that we had there. One of the most popular ghost stories pertaining specifically to the mission in San Juan Capistrano is that of the legend of Magdalena. In 1915, Joseph Smeaton Chase published one of the oldest ghost stories in the San Juan Capistrano community. He collected this story around the turn of the century and published it as one of the many tales told in and around Southern California missions. His version is that Magdalena was about 15 or 16 years old, young and beautiful. She fell in love with a young man named Teofilio. He was a promising artist who painted walls inside the newly great stone church. Magdalena's father was a soldier, and he forbid her to see Teofila because he didn't believe they were in the same social standing. Although forbidden to see each other, Magdalena managed to slip away and meet with Tio secretly. One day, they were caught by her father. Magdalena was severely punished. Her father required her to confess to the priest. As part of the punishment, she was to walk in front of the congregation holding a penitent's candle. The day she was to do this was December 8, 1812. At the early mass, she went inside the Great Stone Church and lit her candle. 
As she carried the candle up the aisle toward the priest to say her penance, the earth began to shake. A large earthquake struck. It was estimated to be a 6.9 magnitude earthquake. The bell tower swayed and fell on top of the church. People screamed trying to make it toward the door, but unfortunately the door was jammed. Forty people were buried alive under the rubble. It took months for the rubble to be cleared and the bodies to be buried. Among the dead was a young girl, Magdalena, with a candle still in her hand. It is said that on a night of a half moon, which is what it was the night that the earthquake hit, that you can see her face in the remaining window of the Great Stone Church, still doing her penance for her forbidden love. You heard that story? Um, yeah, from that episode of Ghost Hunters. See, that's the thing. That's what I really wanted to talk about. The Ghost Hunters did an episode on Samuel Capistano, and it was specifically about, most of the show was about Magdalena. Yeah. And the girl that met him, if you've seen the episode, one of the park rangers that met them um, to talk to them about what they were going to be doing that night told the story of Magdalena. And this is what kind of bothers me about that episode. And we're going to talk about like the history and the background. And it's important to me that when I talk about a ghost story, that you can trace it back in history and determine whether it's a true story, if it's a folklore. If you it's want to a- validate it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, there was not a Magdalena that died at the age of 15 or 16 during the earthquake. The mission has very concise records of the 40 people who passed away during that horrible tragedy. There was a Magdalena, but she wasn't 15 or 16. She was only, I mean, she was an adult. She was well into her 30s and um, was married and I believe had children. So... At first, I thought, well, maybe they just use the name Magdalena to protect whoever it was. I mean, this was written sometime in the 1800s, so maybe they used a different name. But out of the 40 people that passed away and that were buried in the rubble, they were all adults with the exception of two young boys and a baby. So there was no teenage girl. And I'm kind of, I looked through the census records uh, for, um, go the next 40 years. And there was a one Teofila, Philo, was, was supposed to be the boyfriend, um, the artist, um, living in San Juan Capistrano in the 1860 census. And he was elderly by then. He was in his 70s or 80s. So it would make sense that he was the 1860s and he was in his 80s. He would have been how old in 1812? I think he was 88 in the census I saw. So in 1812, he would have been trying to do the math really quickly. I know. Let me try and figure this out. He would have been probably 27, I think, during the earthquake. So I kind of believe that every legend has some sort of truth to it. Do you believe that too? Or do you believe that legends are just made up? I do believe that legends are real and that after you tell them year to year, they get mixed up just like a game of telephone. Right. Starts one person one way, ends differently. I find that a lot, too, when I'm doing Ancestry. There'll be, like, a family legend, and it'll be something really convoluted, like someone was adopted, and their dad was this, and their dad was that, and I'll find out that, yes, that person wasn't adopted, but his grandfather was adopted, and, like, there's some truth to it. It's just not always the right person. It's not always the right name. So I was wondering if maybe the whole Magdalena story was just convoluted like maybe it was Magdalena and she was married and she fell in love with this Teofila and she was really an adult and it wasn't her dad that caught her it was the priest that caught her or something um I do know that I have talked to people in San Juan Capistrano who have seen the light in the window 
which you you can't reach it anymore. It's it's it, part of the ruins. So you can't even get up to that window anymore. No one can. So there, for there ever to be a light in that window, it either has to be a reflection or it is still someone, a spirit trapped there. Yeah. So it, I don't want to say it's not true. I, I'm not going to say that the legend isn't true. I'm just going to say that the legend isn't, I'm just going to say the legend isn't exactly what it says it is. That uh, people do see the light. Uh, many people, I've had, I asked a lot of people. And I had well more than half say that they'd seen the light in the window at night. I just don't think it was a 15-year-old. Yeah. Which is fine. It's still a story from the past and still somewhat romantic. I mean, she could have been committing adultery. I don't know. But it's uh, it people see it and, it and it's part of the ruins and it's part of the history. Of I don't want to say that the legend isn't true. What I will say is it was not a 15 or 16-year-old because there was not someone that we can attach that was a 15 or 16-year-old. Um, but there definitely was a Teofila that Philo that lived in town, and there was a Magdalena that was buried after the 1812 earthquake. The only thing is, too, is that they refer to this Teo gentleman as being an artist. The Teo that I found in the census was not an artist. He was a laborer. But, I mean, that could have changed over the years, too, so I don't know. But... um not impressed with the Ghost Hunters episode. I think that they they did hear a lot of things, and it's the, a yeah. Lot. The episode was cool. Just maybe the the whole story about really right? And I that's what kind of upsets me because I've always been such an admirer of Ghost Hunters, so I didn't like that they didn't research the story. Like it would have been just so easy. They were in the mission, and they were talking to someone who worked there, and they're the the way that I got the list of names of who was buried after the 1812 earthquake, who was buried in the rubble was from the mission. And they're very open about giving you that information. You can call in, they can, they'll either go through the list with you or they'll send you the list. It's not a difficult thing to get. And there's actual, there's some sites online where you can find the information where it has all the burials at the mission that they have record of anyways. So I guess that was my disappointment with that episode because it would not have been difficult. I still love ghost hunters. I'm still going to always love it. But I, I was disappointed that they didn't do the extra research. But that is one thing I feel like their show is missing is that they don't really have a research person. They have someone that tells you the story and then they try and debunk it or prove it to be true. They don't have anyone that does the actual. So give me a call, Jason Hawes. I'll do, I'll do you some research. It's the one part that your show is missing. The second story of Sam Capistrano that, that's had a lot of leverage over the last 150 years is the story of Matilda and how she walked in spirit. In 1930, Capistrano Knight's Tales of the California Mission Town was published. It was written by Charles Francis Saunders and Father John O'Sullivan. He was the pastor. Well, he was the padre of the mission. The story of Matilda is told by Father O'Sullivan himself. Among the stories told is that of the young woman named Matilda and how her spirit was seen before she died, and the bells mysteriously ringing on their own after her death. There was a young woman by the name of Matilda who lived in an adobe house just across El Camino Real, not far from the Sarah Chapel. She helped the Padre in taking care of the altar clothes, cleaning the church and altar. One day, while Mass was being said, the priest noticed Matilda looking in through one of the windows of the church. Later, she was scolded for not coming in and joining the service. She denied ever being at the church. She insisted she was at home the entire time. 
Not long thereafter, the priest again saw her at the window, as did several other women who were at the church. Even her brother-in-law saw her outside in the corridor walking away. Yet when he called to her, she seemed to disappear. Confused, he went to her house to wait for her return, to ask her why she had hurried away. However, she was already home and claimed she had not left the house all day. A few days later, Matilda died. It was whispered that the person seen looking in the window and lurking the quarters of the corridors of the Sarah Chapel had not been Matilda herself, but her spirit, which was walking around while she lived, a sure sign of impending death. On the day of her death, the bells of the mission were rung by unseen hands, the bell ropes neatly coiled and still, and the tolling correctly announcing that a woman had died. This one's a tough one. Why? There are so many Matildas. Yeah. And it's not that common of a name. Maybe it was in 1930. But there were plenty of Matildas on the uh, the censuses before and the censuses after. I couldn't pinpoint a Matilda that died as a young woman. The Matildas I found were all lived all well into the 1970s and 1980s. So I can't say that that was true or false. Yeah, I couldn't find a Matilda that a young girl that had passed away between one census and another. And I think this is another one of those stories that could be distorted by telephone because, you know, the game telephone, because I think the, the name could have even changed. Yeah. It was that, the story just seems so far-fetched for me. And it's not a current haunting. That's what's really interesting is that it's not something someone sees currently or mm-hmm. ever talks about. It's just one of the stories that they wrote about that the, the Padre at the mission told yeah. of um, something happening. Yeah. During that time, the other story it comes from an article that was written in the Santa and it was it's called the Orange County Register now, but back in 1914 it was the Santa Ana Register. Denise Dupree, age seven, was burned in a fire that destroyed. And I'm going to just go ahead and read the article. Um, Denise Dupree, age seven, was burned in a fire that was just dis- that destroyed a house one mile up from the Hot Springs Road from San Juan Capistrano Saturday night. The house was one of those owned by Reverend Alfred Gatou. Oh. He was head of the French settlers in the mission, and Miss Blanche Dupree, whose husband died in the hospital a few weeks ago, is a cousin of the Reverend. So he let them live in his house. Mrs. Dupree and her little daughter lived in the house that was burned. The girl went to sleep early Saturday night, and it was between 6 and 7 o'clock that the fire occurred. Mrs. Dupree stepped over to see a neighbor for a few minutes, and on returning, she found that the paper from a bracket wall lamp had fallen, had dripped oil, and the paper caught a fire from the lamp. Mrs. Dupree screamed to her daughter and then ran into another room of the house to get a blanket to smother the flames. The flames spread so quickly that when the woman returned to the room, she was driven back by the smoke in the flames. She rushed screaming to the yard, and her cries quickly brought some of the neighbors. It was too late to save the house or its contents, though an attempt was made to do so by forming a bucket brigade. Mrs. Dupree was frantic over the failure to get her daughter, and when she finally realized that the little one was dead, she swooned. The house burned to the ground. A search of the debris located the charred trunk of the child where the bathroom had been. This indicated that the girl had awakened and tried to get out of the house but was suffocated. The coroner held an inquest yesterday. The funeral for the victim of the fire was held at San Juan Capistrano's today. The house was worth $2,000, and it says Santa Ana Register, Monday, January 5th, 1914. This is what's really sad. I did my little ancestry thing because I look up everybody, and I found the family in the census from 1910, 
and the father was listed because he had just died a few weeks before the fire. The father was listed before he was ill in 1910 and the mother was listed as having had three children, but only one of them survived, which was this little Denise. And then she lost her too. So the mother, the, what people have heard is the sound of a girl crying and they always sort of just say it's probably Denise crying for losing her life. But I well, honestly, just my gut feeling, it would be the mom. Yeah. It's a lot of loss. It is. I mean, for a mother, she lost her, she lost two children, then her husband and then her last child. I can't, I tried to find where she went from San Juan Capistrano if she stayed there or not. I, I legitimately can't find her. Yeah. I mean, she could have remarried and changed her name and before the next census came out, obviously. But I can't. I can't even imagine what happened to her. That's that's just horrible. It's yeah. like an awful story. But a lot of people hear her hear her crying at night. So And they relate it to that. They relate it to Denise. I like again, like I think it would be more Mrs. Dupree than the little girl. And then the the story that goes around it. The, uh, it's it's definitely a legend about La Llorona. I feel like every town has a story of La Llorona. Do you know the legend of La Llorona? I don't think so, do I? I don't know. I, it feels like every town. I know that it the the story of La Llorona had started in um, the villages of Mexico, the villages of Mexico, and it was a made up story to scare children from being out after dark and wandering around by oh, themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And then I have found over and over and over again, every town has a La Llorona. And everybody always thinks their La Llorona is the only story, but it's not. And it the, the story, I'm going to tell you the story of San Juan Capistrano. Her story goes like this. From Los Rio Street to Paseo Adelanto was the only route to the ocean from San Juan Capistrano. At one time, prostitutes spent time on that route, greeting travelers in hopes of getting business, basically. As the legend goes, one day a young, beautiful prostitute met a man as he was traveling the route. He rode a large white horse, and the prostitute could clearly see that he was a man of money. The wealthy man was enamored with the prostitute because she was very beautiful, and during the afternoon they spent together in her home, he said he'd marry her. Not right away, of course. He had business to tend to first, but he promised her that he'd be back soon, and he'd carry her away to a new life full of luxury where she and her two children could live happily in a large house. After he left her that day, the beautiful prostitute went to her two children and told them all about the wealthy man who was going to come and save them and take them away. As the days passed, the man did not return, but the beautiful prostitute kept telling her children the story of the man that would soon move them all away together. After many months had passed, the young prostitute was again plying her trade on the route walkway to the ocean when he, she saw a stately carriage being driven by a very familiar man. She ran to the carriage, overcome with joy that her soon-to-be husband was finally returning to her. But when she approached the carriage, she realized the man was not alone. Sitting beside him was a very beautiful woman. The young prostitute was stunned. When the man noticed her standing there, he looked at her with some recognition, reached out of the carriage to hand her some small objects. They were children's toys. But he said nothing, and quickly he and the beautiful woman in the carriage rode away. As she stood staring at the toys in her hand, she was overcome by confusion, but then by rage. She went home, got her two children, who, and then walked them to Tribuco Creek, and drowned them one by one, throwing the wealthy man's gifts in the water after them. Once a fit of rage was gone out of her, the woman found herself overcome with grief and regret for having killed her own children. 
The woman in her sorrows waded down into the same creek and let the waters rise over her, drowning herself. Today, her ghost is said to haunt not only the Tribuca Creek area, searching for her children, but also along Los Rios Street and other places in town. So, have you heard that story of La Llorona? I, I feel like I'm mixing it up with something at, like, Tri-City Park or something. There's a La Llorona story. Or Irvine or wherever that it's is. in Placentia. Placentia. Yeah, there's a story of La Llorona, and it's basically the same story that a woman drowned her children and then regretted it. And so it, it's a different story, but it's similar, and that's why I'm confused. Well, I mean, that's what I was saying, is that I feel like every town, every city has a La Llorona story. Yeah. And it's just another version of that, whether it's for – she's a prostitute and it's for a man or um, it's a single mom who met a man. It's always somehow related to a man coming to save her and her children mm-hmm. and then – basically not re- either not returning or returning with some other woman but it's basically the same story everywhere you go uh, and this happens to be the version from San Juan Capistrano so it's definitely not a true story the difference with San Juan Capistrano is that uh, La Llorona is also referred to as the lady in white and the San Juan Capistrano claims to have a lady in white the only problem is with San Juan Capistrano is that they have a lady in white, they have the La Llorona, and then they have the Phantom of Del Obispo. So I believe that over the years, all of these stories have sort of collided and become one. I don't know if it's three individual spirits or not. I do know that the names are intermixed. The only difference with the Phantom of Del Obispo, she seems to be the most popular ghost in town. She's simply known as the White Lady as opposed to La Llorona being known as La Llorona. Although she has been seen at different sites around the mission, San Juan Capistrano, her most famous and most consistent sighting is the old large pepper tree on Los Rios Street. For almost 100 years, she has been seen seated under the tree or walking along Rio Street. And this is where it gets, again, confusing because they call her Lady in White and they call her the Phantom. And then someone else will say it's La Llorona, with, who's searching for her drowned children. The the only difference is the Phantom of Del Obispo. A lot of people refer to her, her as the white, rich, white Witch. And again, I don't know if there's three different different women spirits walking around there. I don't really know. I do know that the, the one they refer to as the Phantom of Del Obispo um, also has a dog, a big black dog that walks with her. And people have said that they've seen the red glowing eyes. And it's sort of the black cat legend that if you actually see the dog, that means impending doom is coming. If you see the Lady in White or the Phantom of Del Obispo or La Llorona, it doesn't mean something's going to happen to you. But the legend goes that if you see the dog, that something is impending death. It has bright red eye, bright red glowing eyes. And they have given, they've tried over the years to give her, this one in particular, the phantom, um, a name of Donna Bernardino. The only problem is there's no one by that name that ever lived in San Juan Capistrano. So I don't, to be honest, I mean, Los Rios Street is really spooky and you've been there with me. Yeah. It is a very, it's the oldest street in California. It is. And it feels like it. I didn't know that. I know that's old, but I didn't know it was old. Well, when San Juan Capistrano was settled, it had 40 adobes. Currently, I believe the number is at six, and I believe five of them are on Del- on Los Rios Street. One of them is over there off of El Camino. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but that's why, I mean, the houses right there are just so super old and you can feel the history just walking down the street. So the fact that there are a multitude of spirits and people walk down that street at night all the time, there's, there's, uh, a ghost walk that goes on. And then once a year, there's a ghost walk that goes on year round, um, a company that does it. And then there's a, the historical society does a ghost walk every Halloween season for just one weekend where they talk about the, the ghost of Las Rio street. So I'm, I'm not even remotely surprised that there are spirits on, on Las Rios. I've always felt really creepy. That's where the prior house is that you went to, that you had an experience at. Yeah. Where's the theater at? It's off of El Camino Real. That's in a different area. And that's one of our experiences that we had was the, the theater is really haunted. It's really and old. The theater is okay. attached. Well, it's no. The theater is sixties, maybe seventies. Oh. Um, the but it's in the same. It's built where one of the adobes was built. In the the adobe that the theater was on is where they would take all the people who were dying, the people who had scarlet fever, tuberculosis, and then it's where they also went for wakes because of its close proximity to the mission. So the theater being haunted, I mean, I, I always believe that theaters are haunted anyways, just because of the drama and the energy that go into theaters. The story of the theater is it's attached where the theater is. There are two, there's one Adobe still standing, which I think is the Blas Aguilar Adobe. And, and then, that's like in that like open grass area, right? And then right next to it is right the open grass area. And the open grass area is where people lived. And the... One common thing that was seen by one of the actors or two of the actors on separate occasions were out back of the theater smoking a cigarette. To both of them, um, a young boy walked up to them. This was on separate occasions. Same story, though. A young boy walked up to them with a ball. The boy was dressed in clothes from the early 1900s. And he interacted with them. These are full-body apparitions that these people have talked told stories of. And both of them were the same story that a young boy walked up to them where they weren't paying attention. They were looking in a different direction. And a young boy walked up behind them and asked them to play. Both of them said they couldn't play. One of them said, sorry, I can't play. And he happened to be walking in the door. So he just walked in the door and didn't think about it again. And once he got inside the door, he thought, wait, should that little kid be out there at midnight? So he peeked back out the door and the boy was gone. The other guy was standing there and he was still smoking a cigarette or something. And the little boy walked up to him and said, do you want to play with me? And the guy responded and said, I can't play right now. I have to go back inside. And the little boy goes, okay, and started walking towards the empty field and just faded away. The man watched this little boy fade away because yeah. he did the same thing that the other guy did. He's like, wait, should this boy be out here by himself? And he's walking into that big empty park by himself. And he watched him be completely visible. He had an interaction with him, watched him be completely visible and then fade away. So... I heard those stories, both those stories from the owner of the theater. And then the other story was that during one season, they decided to do a Shakespeare in the park. And because of their proximity to the park, the park, the park's right next door to the theater. They had set up, um, there was actually a stage already set up there. So one night they had done the entire play. The park was crowded. There were cars everywhere. There was people on the street. And after the whole show was over, they had to clean up and take everything back, you know, drag it all back into the theater. They couldn't leave it out overnight. So when they were done dragging all the things back, people had kind of congregated, like five or six of them had congregated back on the stage. 
So they're sitting on the ch- stage. It was probably 2 o'clock in the morning. They were exhausted. They were tired. And all at the same time, they saw a little boy chasing a ball in the middle of the park. And all of them, they, they all said that the reaction was really slow. Like, oh, there's a kid playing in the park. Like, they didn't really think about it. And then had the reaction, wait, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. And there's a kid playing with a ball in the park. And so then they all commented to each other, did you, did you see that little boy? And so they all got up to go to where the little boy ran, could not find him. They looked all over the park. So knowing me, I'm so obsessed with stuff like that because now there's three separate stories of this same exact description of a little boy playing with a ball. So I started looking up the family that lived there. or I started looking to see if anybody had lived there. And then I found out that a family had come from Germany and opened a hotel right where that stage was. They owned this big, beautiful hotel that was um, supposed to bring people to the mission and the hot springs. And they had four boys. And I found in the census, they had all four boys. And then in the next census, census, the little boy was gone. And I couldn't find the youngest child. The youngest boy was gone. He was probably six or seven. And I'm sorry, he was probably seven or eight. And that's what threw me. He was probably seven or eight in the census that I saw. He was the youngest. He was probably seven or eight. Everybody described him as being like a nine or 10 year old boy. So that put him two years after that sentence of the census that came out. So then I started searching every newspaper to find out what happened to that boy. And they were of the religion where if um, someone passed away, they had to be buried within minutes or hours. They couldn't drag it out. And so that particular family. So I researched the family could not find any reference to this little boy. He was on the census, had their first, their last name. He, and weirdly enough too, one of the older boys had grown up and got married. He named his first child after this boy that disappeared. And he was just on the census and then he was gone. So the only newspaper I could article that I could find was one of the big wigs of San Juan Capistrano was a man named Judge Egan. He used to hire the sons of this man to help him take stuff, um, cart stuff from like Black Star Canyon or from San Diego and they would help him load his wagon and then he would drive it back. There was a story of him and his wagon and a little boy being hit by the wagon and dying, but they didn't mention the boy's name in the article. The only thing I knew from previous articles is that this man had hired children from this family Mm -hmm. and the time in the article matched up to if that little boy had died when he was 10. So I can only surmise that he, that maybe that's the spirit of the little boy. Yeah. It just makes sense. The family lived there. They lost a child. The only thing that frustrated me so badly is that they were in this family was in the paper all the time. They were sort of the social set of San Juan Capistrano back then. So everything they did was in the paper, whether they had a party or anything that they did was in the paper, whether they traveled somewhere else or someone visited them. I was so frustrated not to find any article about what happened to their child. There was yeah. nothing anywhere. So the only thing I can think of is that this was that little boy. And we had tried to do EVPs by calling him out by name. We didn't really get anything. It was kind of disappointing. But I believe that if you if you want to take a chance, I think that you can go hang out at the theater with the little park right next door. And if you're there late enough at night and it's quiet enough, I think that you might run into that little boy. Yeah. I remember you telling me that story. I've always liked that story. Yeah. It's just too many 
too many incidences of people seeing the same thing. Yeah. I'm disappointed we didn't get to experience it. Maybe we will someday when we go down there because I love it down there anyways. Yeah. But if you ever go down there, his name was Charlie. So if you get a chance, search for Charlie in the park and near the theater, the back of the theater, you might you might run into him someday. Um, our last story of San Juan Capistrano is um, one of my personal experiences, like the theater story in little Charlie Mendelssohn. The, like I had mentioned earlier, I had belonged to a, another paranormal research team that, that predominantly worked out of San Juan Capistrano. And one night I was going to meet them down there for something. I don't remember what it was. And I parked in a different place. There was a party going on in one of the restaurants, so it was really crowded. And I had to walk through an alleyway to get to where I was meeting them. And I was early, and I was just kind of looking at all the different restaurants and stuff. And I came upon a restaurant, and I'm not going to mention the name of it, although you're going to probably be able to figure it out really easily. But I don't have their permission to use their name on our episode. So I know that they know that they're haunted, and it would probably be fine for me to use their name, but I'm just not going to because I don't have their permission. But I was walking past this restaurant, and it is, it's a steakhouse that has a 1927 Pullman train car as part of the building. And I kind of stopped to admire it, and I noticed that sitting on the patio was what looked like the chef and some man talking. So they saw me admiring the train car, and the chef, in this amazing French accent, which I believe was French, said, why don't you come on in? And I said, I would love to. Do you want to show me around? And he said, yeah, well, let's let's go inside. So he met me around the front and let me in. And for whatever reason, there was only like one or two diners in the restaurant that night. And it was, I don't remember if it was like a Sunday night or something. And he took me into the train car and was showing me, I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. It's a, a completely rebuilt 1927 Pullman dining car where you can make reservations and have dinner in this little train car. And it's just everything about the restaurant's beautiful. The, even the people that work there are beautiful. Every waiter is super attractive. And I asked him, like I do everybody I ask that I go and see something old or antique I asked him if it was haunted. And he said, yeah, of, of course it's haunted. And I said, it is. And I said, by who? And he did the whole Lady in White, La Llorona thing. And he said, it's our Lady in White. And he goes, you've heard of La Llorona. So he was doing the same thing where he was combining the two spirits, the La Llorona and Lady in White. And he said, it's our lady in white. She's, she's always here. And I said, oh, she is? And he goes, yeah, have you seen her picture? And I said, no, oh, my gosh, show me her picture. So I was expecting him to show me, like, an actual photograph. But what he did was take me to the back door of the train. And someone had drawn, like, in a white chalk drawing, a picture of a lady in white with a flowing, beautiful woman with flowing white gowns. And I said, okay, well, why does she haunt here? And he said, oh, she haunts all of Las Rios Street. And I said, yeah, but why here? Is she attached to the train? Is she attached like to the train? But the time, I didn't know what I was really talking about, but I ultimately figured it out. I said, was she attached to the training, the dining car or the building or the, the land? And he just kind of sort of combined all the different legends down there. And I said, well, don't you want to know who she is? And he said, yeah, I, I do want to know who she is. And I said, well, I, I can help you with that. I go, will you let my team come in and investigate your building one night when you're closed? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys, you can have the whole restaurant for however long you need it. So ended up, he took me over to the manager, who was also a very charming man, and um, made arrangements for us to get in there 
the following Saturday night after they had closed and we could have the restaurant for as long as we wanted, for as long as the manager would stay there with us. And I said, well, don't you, what I'll do, what I'll do during the week is I'll try and find out who this lady in white is. And so again, the whole confusion about the lady in white, Lala Rona, the manager was trying to tell me that whole story again too. And I said, this, what I do, and I tried to explain to him what I do is when people are having experiences or things like that, what I try and do is match it up to actually someone in history so that we know if it's something that could be true or if it's just a legend and a folklore or whatever. So I spent the entire week, I can't even describe, I can't even tell you how many people I talked to, but through this, I found the story of Modesta Avia. And I don't really know if I'm saying her last name correctly. It's A-V-I-L-A. So it's people have pronounced it Avila. Some people have pronounced it Avia. I don't know. So I'm just going to refer to her as Modesta from now on. But what I found out is I had asked them the experiences that they were having there at the restaurant. And they said that all of the waiters had been touched. It not just like a tap on the shoulder. It all was like sort of an inappropriate light touch, like their bottoms had been caressed or their hair had been like someone had run their hands through their hair and almost every waiter there had had that same experience at one point or another. And they also said that customers and they had one of the kids, one of the waiters, because by then we, you know, when I was talking to him by then, all the waiters had kind of congregated and was telling me all their different stories. One of the waiters even had a picture on his phone of a picture of a woman's face in the glass cabinets. They have these glass cabinet displays. So they had said that customers had told them that they saw something predominantly in the walkway between the trailer, or it's not trailer, I'm sorry, the, the dining car and the rest of the restaurant. Because the rest of the, rest, the rest of the restaurant was a building that was there. So I got them talking about the history of the building and what they knew about it. And what I found really interesting is that their bar, which is, by the way, beautiful also, is built the bottom like where you bottom rung where you put your feet if you were to sit at the bar and I guess the the front of the bar was built with the original railroad ties from the 1800s that they when they first put the Santa Santa Fe Railroad through the town when those railroad ties had to be replaced they had used them to build part of the restaurant and their restaurant was actually part of the original train depot Part of it, not all of it, because the train depot had been taken down and rebuilt. So I don't know how much of their remaining building was part of the original building. Um, but it all sort of tied into the whole train, which I'm backtracking a little bit, but that's what tied in the Modesta story. So after hearing all their stories and all their experiences and the history of the building and the train ties and all that stuff, I went um, to the historical society and started doing research on the women in the area, and I came across Modesta. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Modesta. Um, she was born in 1867 or 1868, and sources are different wherever you look. I, I've extensively searched Modesta, and there's no record of her, of the year she was born. So it, I hate to do that, but the records, I can't find them. I do know that um, it was between 1867 and 1869, in, she was born in San Juan Capistrano. There is very little known about her childhood or her earlier life, but by the age of 20, she had inherited the land that she lived on from her mother, and it was just north of the San Capistrano train station and was occupied um, in chicken rearing. 
She she raised chickens and eggs and sold them to the town. Physically, she was described as a dark-eyed beauty in appearance and was an extremely proud woman. The authorities would have considered her a Mexican, even though she had been born in San Juan Capistrano and was technically a Mexican-American. And I do know that she, because I found the records, she had spent 30 days in the Los Angeles County Jail in 1888 for vagrancy. Do you know what vagrancy means? No. It's a euphemism for prostitution in the 1880s. Mm. So she was arrested and put in jail for 30 days for being a prostitute. And the stories um, around town, they refer to as being well-known favorite of the Santa Ana boys. And right now it seems like Santa Ana and San Juan Capistrano are really far from each other. But it was all part of the same county. And, I mean, people, I've studied so much about Black Star Canyon, too. Um, so many of these towns, Yorba Linda, Black Star Canyon, Modesca, Modesca Canyon, San Juan Capistrano, San Clemente, Santa Ana, they were all co- sort of connected on different r- routes that they could reach each other. So Santa Ana and San Juan Capistrano in those days may have been a, a distance to travel, but it was normal because Santa Ana was sort of the the center of Orange County and they had mm. like all the stores and all that stuff. So yeah. people would have traveled that far easily. So for her to be caught, I mean, I she went to a Los Angeles jail and she was referred to as a favorite of the Santa Ana boys, but she was taken to Los Angeles because that's where the jail was. She was upset, and this is what I learned through my research, is that she was really mad about the Santa Fe Railroad being built through her family's land and the railroad ties were laid just 15 feet from her home. She thought that she should have been properly compensated for them doing that, for her, them taking her land. And unfortunately, in those days, a lot of the men around town who owned land where the railroad went through were paid something like ten or $12,000, depending on how much of their land was taken. But because she was a single woman with a bad reputation, they didn't, they didn't offer her any money. They didn't care that they went through her land. And yeah. she was very angry about it. So in 1889, she decided to protest against it. Um, she had local sources say that she had tied a clothesline, hung with her laundry across the tracks, and some say she had a sign on it saying that they owed her her $10,000. Um, other people say that she erected, like, built a whole, like, put a fence post, which would have not necessarily derailed the train, but would have caused damage to the train, mm-hmm. where a clothesline probably wouldn't have. Yeah. Um, but if she had laid railroad ties or a fence post... Or done something more, a solid construction that would have definitely caused issues for the train. There's no, everything I read, one says clothesline, one says um, fence post, one says this, one says that. So I don't really know what she did. I do know that she in some way protested the train going through her land. And she, they say that they, she hung a sign that said this land, this land belongs to me. And if the railroad wants to run here, they will have to pay me $10,000. And then the story is convoluted again. There's a Max Mendelssohn, which is really funny because um, the little boy story that I was talking about earlier was Charlie Mendelssohn. Um, they're related somehow. Max Mendelssohn was the one that ran the train depot. In some stories, she regretted what she had done and ran to the train depot conductor and told him what he she did and asked him for help to remove what she had done to block the train. In other stories, he found it there and told her she couldn't do it, and he deconstructed whatever it was so that she wouldn't get in trouble. So I, no one really knows what happened between Modesta and this Mendelssohn person. It's, it seemed that um, 
she did believe that she would be compensated somehow. I don't know if this was because uh, this Max person had helped her take everything down and said, yeah, yeah, you deserve the money or whatever. Let me see what I can do. I don't know, but she believed she was going to get $10,000. And she even went to Santa Ana to ask at the bank how she would receive $10,000, what she would need to do to, if it would be a check or cash or whatever. And then she organized a party in celebration of getting the $10,000. And some say that the people in town kind of got annoyed with her because she didn't deserve the money. She was just a woman. Apparently the women in town were not thrilled with Modesta either way. So they were mad that she was having this party and all the men in town were probably at the party and they weren't. But um, according to a historian named Lizbeth Haas, in a book, she says that it was her actions after the initial protest rather than the act itself, which led to her arrest four months, four months later for attempted obstruction of a train. And then that she was made as an example to demonstrate that protest um, would be punished under the new state legal system. And it sort of came to a head, and this is what was unfortunate for Modesta, is that, first of all, she had a terrible reputation. Um, secondly, she was unwed. Um, people say she was beautiful. So she just, things were lined up properly to not benefit her at all. They had just built the county courthouse in Santa Ana because the Santa Ana had become the seat of Orange County. They had seceded from Los Angeles. And during the time that the courthouse had been open, they hadn't been able to convict anybody. Every trial that had gone on had ended in a hung jury. So a lot of people say that Modesto was used as an example and a scapegoat for that. And there were people that were running for city council or whatever, and they needed for that courthouse to be effective and to prove that they were doing something to protect the county and the citizens and everything else. It just so happened that. Just so happened that Modesto was one of the ones arrested. So she went to court in her first trial, which is so unfortunate that I have to even say this, because she had two trials for the same exact offense. And you can't, you can't do that now, the double jeopardy law. But back then you could. So her first trial, um, her first trial for interfering with the tracks, was held in the newly opened Orange County Superior Court, and the trial ended with a 6-6 hung jury. So she essentially got off the first time, so then they retried her again. And in the week leading up to her retrial, rumors had spread that she was pregnant out of wedlock, and that was an act considered to be gravely sinful at that time. I question whether that was a rumor that went around or if it was her lawyer. There's conflicting reports about her lawyer too. Some say that he was really young and experienced. Others say that she was, he was the town drunk and she paid them with, she paid him with something other than money to defend her Mm -hmm. and that he was truly incompetent. And I see what I, because I get so into this, I didn't just research Modesta at the historical society. I went to Marin County where, um, cause what had happened, let me finish this first. Um, in the week leading up to her second trial, they, there was rumors going around that she was pregnant out of wedlock. I think that her experience, um, her inexperienced lawyer thought that would help her get off. And it, what it did was work against her cause people were angry. And when her second trial started, they had tons of people, like they couldn't even fit all the people in the courthouse that wanted to see that be in there to witness it. And when she, when, when during that trial, she was found guilty of a felony for obstructing a train. 
She was sentenced to San Juan Capistrano. Or sorry, not San Juan Capistrano. She was sentenced to San Quentin State Prison, which opened in 1852 up um, north in Marin County. And um, the people say that her real crime was that she was just a poor girl, not having sense enough to ha- not have been married. Her her lawyer and I have all the letters from her lawyer. Because, I, like I said, I didn't just research her in San Juan Capistrano. I went to Marin County and spoke to uh, a historian up there who was in charge of all the stuff that they had gotten from San Quentin. There's a library up there that has a whole bunch of information from San Quentin. And I learned this, and this makes me really sad too. In San Quentin, there's physically in San Quentin, there's a room with records dating all the way back to 1852. But the room, it's very damp there. And the room has mold in it. So they won't let, they haven't done an abatement of it yet. So they won't let anyone go in there and get all those records, which is so unfortunate. It's really frustrating because I don't know. The the woman I was talking to was just devastated by the whole thing because there's so much of our history and our past are locked away in a room that nobody can get to, which is really unfortunate. But she happened to have, um, well, she didn't have it. We had to go through, jump through loops. I had to write to the state and get copies of Modestus file from San Quentin. And they have her being discharged. And I actually, I'll have it on our website. Cause I, again, I wrote away, I wrote for it and I got all the letters from her lawyer who her lawyer, her lawyer states that she was pregnant. So that's why I'm saying I'm, I'm questioning whether they thought she was pregnant during the trial, but her lawyer does say that she was pregnant and he doesn't say pregnant. He says, um, the Spanish version and I can't remember what it is. Incente? I can't remember. But it's in the letter, and, and I'll put the letter on the on our website, or episode page, or show page. There's letters from her lawyer trying to get her out of prison. The records that I have that I got from San Quentin show that she was discharged March 3rd, 1892. All the newspaper articles, and I'll, again, I'll have those all on the episode web page too, uh, say that she died of pneumonia in prison. And the woman that I was working with up in Marin County, we searched everywhere. We couldn't find, if she had died in prison, she would have been buried in the prison graveyard. And she's not. And um, this lady was so kind to me. She searched all the graveyards. She took like a, I don't know, week to search all the graveyards in the area and could not find Modesta buried anywhere. And there's a, a legend that says all the men from San Juan Capistrano went up there and tried to break her out of prison. And I kind of feel like maybe they had been successful. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It would have been horrible for Modesta in prison in a in a prison like San Quentin. There were very few women, and God forbid she really was pregnant. I mean, how horrifying she was probably treated there. Even if she wasn't pregnant, she would have been um, treated very poorly. She would have been considered a play toy for any of the guards or any of the other prisoners. Yeah. So. We don't really know what happened to Modesta. Like I said, they have that she was discharged, but she, there's no record of her burial, which doesn't make sense. And then there's a the legend that people went and broke her out. I think that had she got out of prison, she would have returned to San Juan Capistrano. She was too proud not to have. She didn't care. She was also kind of like shunned, though. Yeah, but she didn't care when she was alive. Like, she didn't care before the trial that she was shunned. The women in town didn't like her either yeah. back then. So I think she proudly would have returned to San Juan Capistrano. It was all she had. Yeah. So I think she would have returned. Um, I think she's there now. I definitely do. When I went back to the restaurant and we did a uh, investigation that that night, and I 
I I have this habit or I have this thing that I do with any of the teams that I work with. I do research and you'll see when you see the website how much research I do on every location that we investigate is I don't tell them much about what they should be looking for. I don't want to taint their consciousness before so that they think, so they have ideas in their head what they're looking for, but I will give them a list of names to use like is so-and-so in the room with us or whatever for their EVP sessions for Modesta. She sort of put, fit the profile, I believe of what they were saying in the restaurant. I mean, they all called her the lady in white for whatever reason, she was ridiculously kind to any of the male employees. She would caress them and things like that. To me, I'm sorry, that sounds like what the descriptions I've read of Modesta would do. Yeah. And um, they have their railroad ties inside the restaurant. Where her house is, is you could stand out their back door and spit and hit where her house was. Yeah, it's still there. Yeah, and it's yeah. still there. So I, I 100% believe that the the spirit that they have in that restaurant is probably Modesta. So when they did the investigation, I had given them the name and I told them, you know, that she, she wasn't a fan of the train. And I didn't really tell them any more than that because, like I said, I don't want to compromise or make them know anything in advance. So, um, and I want you guys to Google this. It's, you can, I, I'm not with that um, paranormal group anymore. So I can't really say their name because I didn't ask their permission first. But if you Google Samuel Capistrano, um, Modesta hates the trains. You will find a recording of the EVP they got that night. And I was there that night. And it's really funny because in the ed- edited version, you can hear them talking about me that I had already left because they had heard a woman's voice. But the EVP that they got that night was, um, they were recording in the main dining room and a train went by. And one of the gentlemen that was doing the investigation said, Hey, Modesta, there's that train that you hate or something like that. And you can clearly, I mean, clear as a bell, hear a woman's voice. I hate that train. And so for me. It makes sense. It makes sense. Like, you know that I'm a skeptic. I mean, people always call me the ghost hunter, like I'm the believer and stuff. I mean, I think it's usually a wrong description of me because I think if anything, I'm more skeptical than most people. Mm -hmm. But if I can find but if I can find history that matches up with the experiences people are having and the people that live there in the past and the history and it, nothing has ever matched up as it has in Selma Capistrano with like Charlie Mendelson and now with Modesta that she did hate the train. It just makes sense for her to have said that on an EVP and it makes sense for her to be the one there caressing the boys' bottoms and all that other stuff. And so if you get a chance to... um Go to San Juan Capistrano. I, I believe that there's lights in the window of the mission. I 100% believe in the spirits on Los Rios Street. I know for a fact, well, as much of a fact as you can, that Modesta haunts the steakhouse at the near, near and at the train depot. And I, w- I wanted to do this episode early enough in the season that if people wanted to spend the weekend, you know, hanging out, in San Juan Capistrano and being spooked out, they could definitely do that. You've been there. You've been to the prior house. The historical society used to be the prior house. And that's also right there at the beginning of Los Rios Street. Yeah. The, the, where they have, um, where they have people say that the, the Mr. Pryor sits on the porch rocking in his chair, smoking a cigar. You get the really strong smell of cigar soap, mm-hmm. c- cigar smoke. So, I mean, I believe that the prior house is probably haunted too. There's so many stories about the prior house. Well, I keep calling it the prior house, but it's a historical society now. And we had our own experiences there. 
So again, this is going to be sort of a, it's not a series, but every once in a while we'll touch back and tell a story about Haunted California and different towns. Um, but San Juan Capistrano was my, is my, one of my favorites. I feel like San Juan Capistrano is different than a lot of places in California that are quote unquote haunted because I think the residents embrace it so intensely and it is so old and there is so much history there. Like it just, even if you don't know any of the stories, I feel like you go there and it's everywhere. Right. Like it's everyone walking around says stuff like everyone. And it's always bustling. Like there's always something going on. And it's, it just feels more accepted. Cause like my other favorite is my hometown of old town orange. And that's, that was founded in the 1880s also. I mean, well, the mission town was found in the 1700s because of the mission, but um, it's it's equally old, and I don't think they embrace it no. quite the way Salmon Capistrano 100% embraces their ghosts, yeah. and aren't afraid to talk about it. And you can go into any restaurant or any bar or any business and ask if they if it's haunted, and they just will just kind of word vomit, just kind of yeah, it is, and this is who haunts it. I think that there's so much history there. I mean, you can't help it when it's that old. And it's just cool. We're- Regardless of all the ghosts and the hauntings and whatever, it's just a really cool place. It's a really nice place to hang out. Yeah, really cool restaurants. Yeah, everything about it. Yeah. Maybe we should be a spokesperson for their Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> we love San Juan Capistrano. Regardless of whether you believe in the legends and folklore of San Juan Capistrano, the pretty little town in South Orange County is worth a visit day or night. And if you're lucky, maybe you can run into the spirit of one of their residents, ladies in white. Whether it's Modesta on the railroad tracks or their restaurant, or one of the Lalaronas under the pepper tree. I can tell you the residents of this historic settlement do believe, and unlike the swallows who leave every year, the ghosts of San Juan Capistrano never do. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. Be sure to follow and comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. Visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode. Until next time, I'm Kat, and remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost.